Okay, a few weeks ago, it was the summit. And um, I preached a message on Saturday morning, which apparently everyone liked a lot, so I'm told. Uh, At least a few people came up to me and told me they really got a lot out of that message. And a few people have said I should keep talking about those types of things. So um, bit by bit, we'll do some of that. And I guess when, um, when I was you know, a teenager growing up in the church, the apostolic was all the rage. It was the new subject. And um, everything we learned about it was exciting and new. And no one else in the world heard anything about it before. And, but it was, once you heard about it, you realized, wow, it's really there in the Bible. Why didn't we see it before? And um, so what's happened is, you know, we all had our, ed- our, like our apostolic education, so to, so to speak, 20 years ago. But it's time for some re-educating. <laughs> uh, you know, my method of re-educating, which is, you know, basically my way of understanding it. But it's still the same message. It's just, there's a lot of people who haven't heard it. There's people who don't get it. And um, it's not going to be every week's topic, but it's going to be something that progressively we're going to talk about because the Lord's given us apostolic purpose as a church, apostolic calling. We need to understand more about it, especially given that we're supposed to be explaining it to others. How can you explain something if you don't get it yourself? And so I endeavoured in the summit to just answer the question, what is the apostolic? And uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that video, session five. It was a pretty good video, or a pretty good message, I thought, um, in answering the question as simply as it can possibly be answered. And over the years, I can remember trying to answer that question many times on my own and giving the most fuddled, complicated, roundabout answers that never quite got to it. I think that's what a lot of us have done. It's only been in recent years I've come to this very simple understanding of what the answer is. So go back and listen to that. But basically, my, my simple definition of what the apostolic is, is it's the authentic Christianity that was always supposed to exist. It's the authentic Christianity that the apostles were preaching so that the church would become. The, church, the early church wasn't that although we keep looking back at the early church as this like, glorious thing of the past, they really had huge numbers of problems and things that they had to overcome. They were beginning from scratch. Whereas what we've got is a lot of things they didn't have. And I think people look back on it like it's all been downhill from there. No, it's all been uphill from there. It's all been advancement and progress. Yeah, there's been hiccups along the way, but what we've got is terrifically wonderful and way better than what the early church had. So what we're, when we say, what is the apostolic, it's the authentic Christianity that the apostles were preaching towards. They were preaching towards it because they didn't have it. We think they had it, but they only had bits of it. Like the early church in Jerusalem had that great pouring of Pentecost, you know, the, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that was a bit of it. And, um, you know, we, all wanna, we always keep thinking that was like the golden example to which we're all supposed to strive but mostly because we haven't experienced much of that. But um, I know people keep thinking that the apostolic message is all about getting back to power and miracles. They think that if we can just get some miracles back into the church, then we'll be like the early church and that'll be all wonderful. But I've just got to say to you, we have more miracles now than they had in the early church. And you might not believe me, but just sit down for a minute. If you've been a Christian for 10 or 20 or 30 years, 
sit down for a minute, one day, and start writing down all the answers to prayer and miracles that you know about in your life or in the lives of people around you and see how big that list will get on you. Very quickly, you're going to discover, wow, we're already having the power and the miracles at work right now. I wrote a book called Sermons on the Mount, and all it was was just stories from my 14 years in Mount Morgan. And, of course, you're going to put all your best stories in. That's what you do, right, when you write books. You don't put all your bad stuff in. I mean, there were a few bad things put in too, just to give context. But um, someone said to me after reading the book, they said, wow, you must have a power ministry, just like the book of Acts. And that's what made me realise, you know what, the average day in Mount Morgan, which was 99% of them, was boring as hell. Just regular life, not that much fun going on, plenty of terrible sermons. Um, I can remember my first sermon up there, you know, to three people and being, you know, in hindsight, looking back on it, they more or less patted me on the back and said, thanks for coming, you know, you'll get better. Like, there's 14 years of that, all kind of ordinary stuff, but you pray. Miracles don't come from people, they come from God. So the fact that you've got miracles is because of him. The fact that I prayed a prayer and there were a few miracles and I wrote them down in a book, all I've done is condense the best parts of 14 years into one little book. Someone's read that and said, wow, you've got a power ministry like the book of the Acts of the Apostles. You know what I realised? The Acts of the Apostles is the best stories from about 30 years condensed into 28 chapters. If you were living in, the Jerusal in Jerusalem for those first 20 years, you know what you would have experienced? Going to work every day, wondering how you're going to feed your kids, paying taxes, you know, grumbling and complaining because, you know, someone else in the church had the better job than you did. You know, all the regular stuff. The Jews and the Gentiles not getting along. You know, in the early church, there were no Gentiles up until whatever chapter it was, 14 or 13 of Acts. They didn't accept them at all. They were rejected because they weren't in God's plan. That's what I mean about the, the really beginning from scratch. The early church was Jewish only, and they thought that the rest of the world weren't good enough for God. Man, we've come a long way from there. No, the, the apostolic message was what they preached, but it wasn't what they were. And so the def simple definition of the apostolic is the authentic Christianity that is supposed to be. So if we've been given a task to take an apostolic message to the nations, what we're preaching is the authentic Christianity that God intends, and it also happens to be the authentic Christianity that the early apostles were preaching. It happens to be the same thing. The only difference is we actually understand it better than they did. Can you believe that? Can you believe we actually understand some of this better than the early apostles did? Do you know that slavery was rife through the ancient world? It wasn't until 17, 1800s that Christianity figured out that we shouldn't have slavery. Why did it take so long? It's been a process. It's been in the Bible all along. Right from the beginning, God was the one that, that delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, set the big example, slavery is not pleasing to God, God's a deliverer, he doesn't want people in slavery. It's been in the Bible all along, but it took until the 1700s and 1800s for Christians to figure it out. This is what I'm talking about. The early church was nowhere near the type of church God wanted. 
Do you think that the Old Testament, which is so obviously full of bad examples of people following God, do you think that there came a moment when click and they suddenly turned from the worst examples ever to just the perfect example overnight? No, they didn't. They had a lot of baggage to undo and it's taken 2,000 years and we're still undoing the baggage. So there's a process at work. So what happens is Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, I'm leaving. It's, it's in, uh, where is it? John chapter 16, verses 12 to 14. So at the Last Supper, Jesus gives his disciples all these like final parting instructions. You don't get them in Matthew, Mark and Luke, but in John you get four entire chapters of Jesus' like final instructions. So, and I think there would have been a lot more instructions than this. This is probably just what John remembered and wrote down years later. So Jesus is telling them all this stuff. And in John chapter 16, verse 12 to 14, he says this. Hopefully they've got it up on the screen. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So even the 12 disciples didn't know everything. They were preaching the authentic apostolic message, but they didn't even understand everything that it meant. Jesus said, I can't even tell you it all now, but the Holy Spirit's going to explain it to you. So what happens is as church history goes along, the Holy Spirit's actually working to explain things to people. This isn't new th these are not new things that no one's ever heard before. No, what happens is the Holy Spirit enlightens the scriptures that are already there. So people realize, oh, that's what it all means. They go to their Bible and it's everywhere in the Bible. It, and then you, you know it's completely true because it witnesses with your spirit and it witnesses with the spirits of all the other believers when they start hearing it as well. So now the body of Christ changes. We become more like God, but it's what was in the scriptures all along. It's not coming up with new fandangled ideas to take us off course. It's the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us into all truth, just like what Jesus said. So there are things that are now happening um, in the body of Christ. They've been happening, like think of Martin Luther 500 years ago. That stuff was in the Bible all along. But just, it's just like a penny drop one day. Or you think about John Wesley and some of the stuff two, three hundred years ago. That stuff was in the Bible all along. Think about the Pentecostal movement a hundred years ago. That wasn't new stuff that was made up. All the apostolic stuff that we've been talking about lately, that's not new. It sure is a new idea collectively. It's like no one thought of it before. But no, the Holy Spirit knew about it all along, put it in the Bible. Even some of the things that prophets and the apostles were saying they were saying what God told them to say, but they didn't understand everything that it meant to them at the time. They understood something, but as time's gone on, we've looked back on it and thought, isn't it amazing what God's put in there for us to discover? And when we discover it, we're just more and more, it's almost like God knows the future. It's almost like he's a time traveler or something. Well, he is, he's a time traveling God. He's in every moment of time. It's, he doesn't travel here, there, and everywhere. He's just in every moment of time. So he knows what the future needs, and he's put it in the Bible, ready for us. He's just an incredible, incredible God. So anyway, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start there this morning. 
Now I want to say, um, I already told you what the simple definition of the apostolic, the authentic Christianity that was always supposed to be. Um, I think there are three implications for us as Christians and three things, if we're going to make it practical, there are three things we should preach if we're going to make it practical. Number one, we belong to each other and we love one another. That's practical point number one. Practical point number two, we follow the leaders God gives us and we trust them. That's the second practical point. The third practical point is we go and serve because we're mini apostles. Everyone's called to serve and go. We're all priests. So there's no such thing as a, a laity, someone that sits in the congregation and does nothing. If the apostolic message, that the truth of authentic Christianity is everyone's called to serve and go, you're all like a mini apostle, so to speak. Because the word apostle just means someone that's sent. God's sending you all. So there may be some people that are apostle apostles, but you're all apostles in a sense, because you're all called and you're all sent. So they're the three practical points. If, if I was going to say, we're, if we're going to get back to authentic Christianity, we belong to one another and love one another. We all follow the, we follow the leaders God gives us and we trust them and we go and serve because you're all like mini apostles. Okay, that's the practical level. That's where it's all heading. So if we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, uh, Paul was saying all this stuff. He was writing to Gentiles, actually. You should read all the previous verses. He was saying that there was this dividing wall, splitting the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, but it, because of Jesus, it's been broken down, and now they're one. And then he says this, Consequently, now that Jews and Gentiles are one, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Now the you is the Gentiles. He's saying to all the Gentiles, which is everyone here as far as, as I understand, you are not foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. In other words, the Jews are citizens, but you are citizens too. You're all citizens with God's people and members of his household. Then it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the church, the body of Christ, is, you know, there's no division, we're all in it, and we're built on this foundation of apostles and prophets, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Now I want to just explain quickly what I understand this foundation is. It's a few things. I think it's three things, at least. Number one, the foundation of apostles and prophets is, is historic. So if you go back way, 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 way back to Moses, Moses is a prophet. David is a prophet. Sam, you know, uh, Samuel is a prophet. Elijah, Isaiah, all of these are prophets. You get to the New Testament, apostles. Paul's an apostle, Peter's an apostle, James an apostle. We as a church wouldn't exist without all the history of all these people. We are historically built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. It's just fact. If it wasn't for that historic foundation, we wouldn't be here. And of course, if it wasn't especially for Jesus Christ, we would not be here. He's the chief cornerstone of the entire thing. We wouldn't exist without him, no doubt about it. So when we say the foundation of the church is the apostles, that's the New Testament history, and the prophets, that's the Old Testament history, 
Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the one right in the middle of the whole thing, we wouldn't be here. That's our foundation. However, there's more to it than that. There's more foundation going on than just history. There's doctrinal foundation. It's not just the fact that those people lived and that their lives were something and their lives led to us. It's the fact that they had things to say. So doctrinally, we, we've, we get the scriptures from them. The Bible is the words of God, but more specifically, it's the words of the apostles and the prophets. The Old Testament is the words of the prophets. The New Testament is the words of the apostles. And we get all of our doctrine, all the things we think and believe have come from God to us through the apostles and the prophets. So that's a second layer of our foundation as Christians. It's not just the history of how we got here. It's the things we believe and the things we've learned and we come to understand have come to us through the apostles and the prophets. But of course, all of it is the word of God, our chief cornerstone. But then there's a third level. The third level is that the body of Christ is relational. We're called to love one another, but love implies, involves, and requires relationships. Those people aren't around anymore. Those apostles have done their job. Those prophets have done their job. We're not in relationship with them in any sense, but there are apostles and prophets alive today. There are church leaders alive today, and we're in relationship with them. So the Lord doesn't leave the body of Christ without apostles and prophets. So there's a foundation that remains because the Lord has put relationships in the body of Christ today. And there's a five-fold ministry in the body of Christ today which the church needs. So the foundation is like multiple things. And of course, Jesus Christ was alive in the Old Testament. He came and lived in, in person. He, he's been with us ever since, all through the New Testament period, all through church history. So he's very much the chief cornerstone. He's with us now. If Jesus wasn't with us now, there'd be no church. There'd be no building There'd be no body of Christ. So when we say that we're members of God's house, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, it means a lot of things. It means what God's done in the past. It means the word of God we have to us. It means what God's doing now. It means the love and the relationships of the body of Christ at work now. If you're missing all those components, or if you're missing any of those components, it's not the real thing. God thinks of everything. Um, to illustrate this, um, I, was, I was trying to think, what's a practical illustration? And it's not even that good of a one, but it's an illustration. When I was in um, Mount Morgan years ago, I um, was so interested in history, and I did all this historical research into the town and the mine, and I found out that there was a guy up there called Walter Hall, who was one of the early shareholders of the Mount Morgan mine. One of the suburbs of Mount Morgan is called Walter Hall. When you drive in, you drive through Walter Hall, Walter Hall, of all the original shareholders, was a philanthropist. A lot of the others weren't so generous. Um, they did interesting things with their money too. But this Walter Hall, I think, was the most interesting of them all. When he, when he was alive, he built the Mount Morgan Hospital, which was huge. If you travel through um, little outback towns in Queensland, you find these little hospitals or clinics. They're little because that's what the government could afford. Mount Morgan had a monstrous hospital you know, comparatively speaking to other towns, it was a huge hospital paid for by Walter Hall out of his own personal money. But when Walter Hall died, he established this thing called the Walter and Eliza, as his wife, Eliza Hall Trust, 
and he donated one million British pounds, which I did a quick little, some quick little sums, is worth about $115 million today. So a tidy little gift to start this trust. Well, that trust exists today. It's in Melbourne. It's still continuing on. Now, Walter and Eliza Hall are long gone, but the trust is not gone. The trust today is, um, does a few things. It's primarily focused on medical research. And apparently they've made great breakthroughs into cancer research and they're still researching cancer and stuff today. So this is the money from 1912, I think it was established. Money from you know 110 years ago, still at work today. So you would say, who were the founders of that trust? The founders were, you know, Walter and Eliza Hall. They were the people that got that trust started. The trust wouldn't exist without them. But there are people today in the world, and I looked up their names. There are, you can go to the Walter and Eliza Hall Trust website and it'll list all the directors. There are people today who are experts in you know, managing money, investing money, using the proceeds for the public good. There's six or eight people on this board and that's all they do. And the trust wouldn't exist without those people. So it's very much a living thing now. There's a foundation right now of human beings who work together and make this thing happen. But there's also a historic foundation that goes way back to some people who had a bit of foresight and thought we're going to leave. They basically left their inheritance when they died to start this thing. So um, that's just a kind of an example of something that exists and, and it wouldn't exist without real leadership today, but it also wouldn't exist, wouldn't have a foundation without real leadership and foresight and thinking ahead and all of that 110 years ago, or probably longer than that. And you can look up wehalltrust.org.au for more information. And it's an interesting website. Read some of the stuff they do. I personally think it's quite inspiring thinking that people could invest money into the future like that. And that's what our storehouse is doing, by the way. That's the same type of thing. It'd be great to think that in 100 years from now, our storehouse is doing the same type of things that the Walter and Eliza Hall Trust is doing. But the body of Christ is the ultimate storehouse. <laughs> Because a hundred, well, two thousand years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ started something. He sowed a seed into the earth, which was his own life. He invested it into the future, and then he put the truth into these twelve men and all the other people who were with them, like his mother, and and he told them what to say and he told them what to do. And that storehouse, which was in, put into the lives of people, has grown and grown and grown to become what it is today. And so here we are today, we've been given the job by the Lord of taking an apostolic message to the nations. And it's not a message, like I said, of let's go back to the early church. No, it's a message of let's find out what God always intended to be preached and let's make sure people know what that is. So the three things I think we're trying to preach, we can use all our fancy language, are that we belong to each other and we must love one another. And that's not just us here at peace. We're trying to teach Christians that. Christians don't think like that. You might think they do, but they don't. Christians think that that only applies within some small little bubbles of their mind. So when a preacher says, love one another, you know what they think? They think their own little church, we've got to love one another. That's what they think. Or they might think, do kind deeds for people who are, in, who are in need. They might think that as well. They don't think that the body of Christ belongs to one another. And you can say that, and they can intellectually hear that as a concept, 
but it hasn't sunk in. In fact, it takes a long time for that to sink in. It's like the penny has to drop on that, and that can be a process. And um, we've been having the pastors meetings here in our church for five years, and it's taken m many of those years for the pastors to, to come to love and trust one another and to get a sense that we're doing this together. If it takes that long for pastors, it's a process. It's a process because you're in your world and in your way of thinking, and it's hard to get you out of that way of thinking and to see a bigger picture. That's why the apostolic message is needed. People have to say things. People have to demonstrate things. You have to be an example of it, and um, it, you have to be consistent with it so that the penny will drop in people's minds. Once the penny drops, they're never the same again. So the apostolic message is, it's that. That's one thing. We belong to each other and we love each other. This is a body of Christ thing. When I went to the Queensland Churches Together meetings last year, I don't know if I ever shared this in church. I may not have shared my story of... So the Rocky Churches Together, I'm the chairman. We're officially a member of the Queensland Churches Together. Queensland Churches Together is officially a member of the National Council of Australia, or National Council of Churches of Australia, something like that, and they're a member of the World Council of Churches. And I know some people have mixed feelings about the World Council of Churches, and even the NCCA. Fair enough. It's a mixture. I get all that. The Queensland Churches Together, however, is solidly Christian, <laughs> and you can't be a member of it unless you're Trinitarian which I guess no point going into all of that, but it just means that the Jehovah's Witnesses are not a part of it and the Baha'i are not a part of it. When you get up to World Council of Churches, they mix up with strange stuff. But at the Queensland level, it's purely Christian. And a lot of the ministers' fellowships all around Queensland are like informal, but the Rockhampton Churches together was formally constituted back in the 90s by the, uh, the bishop, the Rockhampton bishop, because back then it was started by the Catholics. And um, so they decided to formally make us a member of Queensland Churches together. I know this all sounds a bit dull and boring, but I'll, I'll get to the point in a second. So basically, out of probably hundreds of ministers' fellowships in Queensland, there's only like five that are official members of Queensland Churches together, and Rocky is one of them. So every year I get this email saying, would you please submit your report for the annual general meeting of the Queensland Churches together? What we're supposed to do is write this report and say what we've done here in the last 12 months, and it gets read out there in Brisbane, you know, and it gets signed off and noted and all of that. Yes, this is what they've done in Rockhampton. And, you know, I think Toowoomba have got a report that goes in, and the, the Southern Downs is another one, and King Arroyo. There's four or five of them, maybe one up near Atherton, I think, and that's it. Um, but anyway, last year I decided to go. I never went to any of the others because they're unbelievably boring meetings. I didn't even send reports some years. We just didn't do it. So anyway, last year the prompting of the Holy Spirit was I should send a report, which I did, and then go. So I went. And when I got down there, I discovered to my shock and horror that it was highly ecumenical. Now, I know it's supposed to be ecumenical, but there was no life in it at all. And that's probably the reason why I never went any of the other years. Because it's all very prim and proper. And at the meeting, there are these bishops and there are these moderators of various denominations and all of this. And they all sit around and they give their report. And we attended the multi-faith gathering. And, you know, this is what we said. And everyone gives a clap for the report. Well, you know, all dry as dishwater. And then I didn't know that I was going to have to 
I didn't know that when you go in person you actually present your report. I had no idea. Because your report's written out in the book with this gigantic thick book with everyone's reports. When I got there I realised, oh, I'm going to have to present my report. And I decided on the spur of the moment, forget the report, I'm just going to say other stuff. So, no, this is fair and what happens. I stood up and I said, my report's in the book, feel free to read it. Um, but there's no point in me reading something you guys can all read for yourselves for free. And I, I said, um, as Christians, we're not called to just do stuff together. Any old person can do any old thing with any old other person. No, we're called to love one another, and that's very different. So I was explaining to the, basically the heads of every denomination in Queensland, about 30 of them, saying, and I was trying to be nice, but I may have been a bit abrupt, but I was basically saying that we're called by the Lord to love one another, and it's a thing from the heart. We can't get together once or twice a year and do a combined event and say that we've done what God wanted. That's just not it. No, we're Christians. It's a hard thing. We work together because we've got a, the Lord is our God in common. We're on the like, and I was trying to explain all of this, um, but it's like trying to break into another world, isn't it? It's like they just don't think like that. And it, it's, I'm not, it's not a criticism against them. It's just everyone. It's every Christian of every denomination just doesn't think like that. And so what you can do is you can say it to someone, they'll acknowledge it intellectually as the truth, and it doesn't sink in. Because it's got to be experienced. Or the Holy Spirit's got to kind of reveal it to people. But it's a combination of the two. That's why it's sinking in here, because we've had five years of con conversing and praying so the relationships start to become important. The fact that you love one another, the fact that you have relationship starts to make the Bible, the Bible is now seen in a different light because of what's happening with us. So this is the apostolic message. Point one, I can say we belong to each other and we love one another. You probably didn't hear me when I said it. I was saying something you didn't get. I mean, maybe you did, but what I'm saying is that most people hear that and they think, oh, that's the same old Christian message I've heard a thousand times before. We're supposed to love one another. No, you, don't, you didn't get it. It's something that's got to sink in. This is the apostolic message. Anyway, I actually got a round of applause at the end of that. Um, well, uh, you know, report slash lecture at the QCT. And then all these people wanted to talk to me afterwards. It was like the, la the latest, greatest thing they'd never heard before. But then you, you go away realising it didn't really sink in. It was, you know, wonderful truth for the moment. And, and David Parker, who was, you know, the president of Queensland Churches Together, he stood up afterwards and he said, well, it's great to know that the Lord's doing something in Queensland. At least we've got a story out of Rockhampton. And I thought, well, that's not very encouraging. <laughs> you know, if Rockhampton's like the only story we've got... Um, the truth is that God's doing lots of things. It's just that Rockhampton was the only fraternal that was officially a member of that that had a story to share that was worth sharing. God's doing lots of things in lots of places, but they're all informal and they're not reported on. Thank God for that. Thank God he's at work in lots of places. I'm so grateful. Anyway, point one. We belong to each other. We must love each other. This isn't just love your neighbour in your congregation or do it or you know, help the poor. It's... it's we have to become one. We're the body of Christ. 
You've got to think about the people that go to other churches as, as though you belong to them. And you got, the apostolic message is part of sharing these things with them so they come to realise they belong to you. One of my prayers is always, when I meet a new minister, is, Lord, um, you know, put in his heart a love for me, put in my heart a love for him, help us to come to belong to one another. Like I pray these prayers like this. I ask the Lord to give me their love. I know that sounds really selfish. I'm not praying it selfishly at all. It's so good for a pastor when they come to love me and when they come to love the other believers because now they're starting to enter into the authentic thing and I pray, Lord, give me love for them. And um, so that's point one. Practical, three practical points. We belong to each other. We love each other. Point two, we follow the leaders God Christ gives us and we trust them. And um, I'm not going to say much about this. This is a whole area worth exploring. But this is the sonship message that Dad's been preaching for a long, long time. Traditionally in churches, you don't trust your leaders. You're suspicious of your leaders. Because, you know, and there's been reasons for people, for, there's reasons to be suspicious, you know, historically. Some pastors have done the wrong thing or people, when they get into positions of power, they can abuse it. So there's, people tend to you know, lean on human nature, expect the worst. There's pe people have said things like, don't trust any man, only trust God. Well, all of that's not the way authentic Christianity is supposed to be. We're supposed to know the heart of our leaders and we're supposed to be able to trust them and trust that they're leading us into the heart of God and we're supposed to go there together. That's authentic. That's the message of sonship that Dad's preached all over the world for the last 20 years. So that's you know, key point number two that we need to get back to. We need to get, to get back to the place where we have authentic leadership and we trust it. And the third point is that we must go and serve. Everyone is a mini-apostle. Now, I want to just finish with this thought. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, this is the famous passage that talks about apostles. It says... Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of, of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. A few things to say here. First of all, it's Christ giving the apostles. If you go back a few verses, it says it was in his ascension that he gives these gifts. His ascension is in heaven. You know, like when he picked those first 12 apostles, he was on the earth. But it says in his ascension, he's given gifts. So the apostles that are being talked about here are not the 12. These are ones after the 12. And this is what, if you go to a, a traditional theological college, like the one I have been studying at for many, many years, They'll read this passage and say, oh yes, the Lord appointed the apostles, the 12 apostles, he appointed them. And they see it so insular, like they're the only ones, but they don't read the thing properly that says in his ascension he appoints apostles. It's not talking about the 12, it's talking about apostles after that. Well, who are all those apostles after the 12? Well, <laughs> we don't know who they all are, we know who some of them are, but the fact is that this passage is talking about different people to the 12 apostles. And it says that they are needed, in verse 12, to equip his people for works of service. So who 
in the body of Christ is supposed to do the work. Who? The people. The people are supposed to do the work, and who's supposed to encourage them and teach them so that they're ready to do the work? The apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists. So the old mindset is that there's clergy and there's laity. The clergy are the preachers and that they up the front, they're the ones doing the work, and the laity are the ones sitting in the pews, you know, enjoying being encouraged week by week, you know, hearing the promises of God. No, that's wrong. The clergy are up the front <laughs> to teach the people what to do so that they can go and do it. <laughs> so if you're not going and doing something, you're simply not being a Christian. If you think that coming to church once a week is being a Christian, no, you've, you've only got about 5% of it. Being a Christian is doing the works of service that God has called you to do. You're the mini-apostle. You're the one that's being sent. Now, direct, indirectly you're being sent by God. More directly, you're being sent by your pastor or by your local leader who's encouraging you, who's teaching you that you're supposed to get out there. In a sense, I'm sending you. I'm sending you out into your community to be a Christian. You're a sent one. You're an apostle, so to speak, in that sense. In your workplace, you, you represent Christ. Those people that you know, no one else knows them. There are no other Christians that know the people you know. You represent Christ to them. You've been called to do the work of Christ in your world, in the people you know, amongst your family and amongst your friends, no one else is going to do it. Your pastor can't do it. He doesn't know those people. He doesn't even know their names. He can pray with you if you share information with him and say, agree with me in prayer. He can do that. But no, you're the one being called to go and do the work of the ministry. It's your job. There's no such thing as laity. The word laos just means the people in Greek. There's a country in the world called laos. It just means the people. It's a Greek word. Uh, that's because it was a communist country, you know, the people. Um, but the laity, um, that's the people. But it doesn't mean they're not working. They're supposed to work. <laughs> and it's the apostles and the prophets and all these people. It's their job to teach you the work, the work of service. And it says here in verse 12 that they are to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. In other words, we're not going to become what God wants unless you do the work. Some people thought we're not going to become what God wants unless apostles do their job. Well, that's true, but it's not the whole truth. We're not going to become what God wants us to become unless you work. So, You've got to come to that place of saying, the Lord's given me a task to do. What is it? I'm going to do it. And this is what I was saying last week about joining a phalanx. You know, phalanxes were those groups of Roman soldiers that worked together and saying, you, you've been given a job to do. The Lord's calling you to work. So yes, obviously you can't work full time. Pastors work full time. The Lord's called them to that role. You have other things you'll do full-time. Like You have to earn a living and whatever, but the purpose of your life is not to earn a living. The purpose of your life is not to just 
earn some money so you can go home and watch Netflix. That's not the meaning of your life. No, you've been called to serve the Lord. That's the meaning of your life. And if you're doing the Netflix thing, you're missing what your life is about. Anyway, Apostle's job is to encourage you to do what you're supposed to do and to teach you to do it. So that's why the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, because the apostles have to be in place to get everyone else working. <laughs> if you don't have them in place to do it, nothing happens. So that's why we still need them today. So I'm going to summarise, reminding you of our simple definition of what the apostolic is. It's the authentic Christianity that is supposed to be. The apostolic message is the message that encourages you to be what God's called you to be. And practically, I think it means at least three things. It means we belong to each other and love one another. It means we follow the leaders God gives us and we trust them. And, um, and it means we go and we serve because everyone is a mini-apostle. You're all called and you're all being sent. You all got it? All right, great. <laughs> So now I leave you with a question. What is it that you're supposed to do? And that's something that you have to go and ask the Lord. If you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, you've got to get clear on that. Okay? Now you can come to me and say, what, what can I do? Give me something to do. Well, I'll, I can think and try to help you, but it may be that the Lord's putting things upon your heart that you've just got to say yes to. Christian things. There are things in your life that maybe you should just be doing for Christ that no one else can do. Some people thought that being an evangelist meant standing up and preaching the gospel, right? No. An evangelist is someone that teaches someone else how to share the gospel because it's a five-fold ministry job. Remember the five-fold ministries? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers are to equip God's people for works of service. An evangelist teaches people how to share their faith with others and you're all supposed to share your faith with others. It's not an evangelist's job to do that, it's your job to do that. Okay? <laughs> so in your life there are people that need to know about Christ, they're only going to hear about it from you. If you're scared about that thought, start praying about it because there'll be a way. And the way may be that you start by praying the Lord to, to cause them to be interested and ask you. This culture we live in doesn't like it when we shove the Lord down people's throats. But they are interested in the Lord. And you, by starting to pray for people, you'll, you'll find that they're the ones that will come to you. The door will open. So you start by praying. And if you're praying, at least that's more than what you were doing before. Right? So you start by doing that. That's a Christian thing to do. That's being a mini-apostle in your life to the people around you. That's something you should at least be... That's just using your talents to the minimal level that they should be used and not burying them in the ground. So I'm going to pray and bless you. We'll invite the band to come. One of the things we're trying to do as a church is, is reinvigorate Bible study, the studying, studying of God's Word. We're trying to reinvigorate prayer getting you into prayer meetings, getting you study God's word. These are Christian things to do. And if you're not doing them, then I encourage you to do them as someone that's being equipped for ministry. Someone that's, that says, my purpose is to follow the Lord. 
you know, start learning what the Lord wants. Start studying your Bible. Start studying it with people in Bible studies. Maybe the Lord's calling you to start a Bible study. I suspect there's a lot of people in that category. If you're scared of doing that, great. That's the qualifications for starting a Bible study. Go and search everyone in the Bible who God called. They were all scared except for Mary. She was a bit unique. But they were all terrified of what God called them to do. Jeremiah said, who am I, Lord? I'm just a child. He wasn't a child, by the way. He was at least 18 or 20, just called himself a child. No, he just didn't feel qualified. But no, that's the prerequisite prerequisite for serving the Lord. If you don't feel qualified, you're qualified. That's the qualification for serving the Lord, is to not feel qualified. Because then you're going to trust him. You're going to lean on him. You're going to pray a lot. You're going to be asking him to help you. Those are all the things you need to serve the Lord. If you think you're capable, if you think you can do it in your own strength, if you're depending on your own wisdom, you're probably not going to do a very good job. You're not going to ask the Lord for help. You're not going to do it in his strength. You're going to do it your way. You're not going to succeed. So if you're feeling unqualified, if you're feeling scared, if you're feeling too young, if you're feeling too old, if you're feeling, you know, the opportunities passed you by, if you're feeling, I'm only a woman, if you're feeling like I'm only a man, it doesn't matter what you're thinking and feeling. If it's an excuse, you've just qualified yourself to serve the Lord. If the Lord's calling all of you to works of service, then it makes sense you're supposed to be doing something. So the excuses have to go, and then the openness to it has to come and say, Lord, what is it? What do you want me to do? Okay, so that's your job. Your job is to ask the Lord, not if, but what. What are you supposed to do? Let him show you. He will. He knows how to speak. He's a speaking God. He may not speak the way you think, but if you ask him, he will speak. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today from Ephesians. Thank you, Lord, for things you've had to say. And I want to thank you, Lord, that all those years ago, you started the storehouse with the seed of your own life. You sowed your life into the world. And Lord, we, we've reaped the benefit of it all these years later. And I pray that grace would be given to us to sow our lives into it too, so that the, the storehouse of life might grow and increase, that the gospel message might have ever-increasing power. Father, I ask a few things right now. First of all, I ask that the, the apostolic as an idea would click in every heart and mind here. I pray that we would not go through more years of confusion about what it means, but I pray that we would understand it clearly and we would be able to work with it. We would be able to explain it to others simply, that we would be able to live it. And Father, I ask this morning, you give us grace with these three basic points of belonging to one another, Father, of trusting our leaders of sonship, and Heavenly Father, of Oh, serving you. Lord, help everyone here to serve. Help them to no longer be passengers on the bus, but people who are actually driving buses. Lord, I pray your grace would be at work for us today. By faith, I release an anointing of understanding into the, into the church today. By faith, I re release an anointing to understand into our YouTube channel today. All who hear this message, let, they, let them understand. And Lord, let hearts be changed today. 
Let grace be at work from this day on in our midst. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I would also pray, ask you to bless everyone. Bless us with health. Bless us with strength and grace and wisdom. Bless us with increased finances, the ability to give and serve. Lord, help us to trust you as hiccups come along, to overcome them. Help us, Lord, to, to grow through our personal difficulties. With Lord, help us to overcome relational struggles. Give us victory, Lord, in our homes, in our families, with our neighbours, with our friends, in our workplaces. Lord, let us be an example of what Christ has called us to be. So bless your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.